I want us to take some time this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to sing that again, and you join with them. I just want to open the front here. If, if you have a prayer request, a prayer need, there's something about being in the presence of the great I am. And when we're all together, the power that's released in the presence of God in worship. And come believing. We're just going to sing this again at the very beginning. If, you get, if you're too tired of standing, you can be seated. That's fine. But we're just going to open the altars. There'll be somebody to pray with you if you desire that. But we need to allow this time. It just takes some family time to pray for needs this morning. So whatever your need, you may have somebody you know that has a need. You may have a need personally, whatever that is. Let's just take some time to, to do that. Father, we acknowledge you today as the great I am. There's none, there's none like you. Never has been, never will be. And you sent your son Jesus not only to pay for our sins and restore a relationship with a God that was alienated from us by our choice, but also to die and shed your blood so that we could have peace with God and we could also partake of the healing power spiritual healing, physical healing. By your stripes we are healed. And Father, I pray that you'll build our faith in the fact that you are God who heals today. You are God who releases your power. God, that you would release your power among us. Father, many prayer requests. Lord, there are, there are people that are sick, people that are ill. And God, we are placing them in your hands knowing that you have the power to heal. We're asking for your healing touch. Father, for relationships that need restoration. Father, for financial miracles, people that desperately need something to happen. God, for a miracle in a job, a marriage, Lord Jesus, that is struggling. You are the great I am. You have the power to accomplish those things. And as these prayers have gone up, Lord, we pray for your miraculous touch. We are here expecting Jesus to answer. I pray that as we get up every morning, we will expect Jesus to be here. As we open the word of God, we will expect Jesus to speak to us. As we come together as believers, we will expect Jesus to be here in the house. Because it's your presence, Jesus, that we long to be in. And God, that... As, as we experience that presence of Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would work miraculous things in our life, that we would be changed. God, we now pray that you will take the living word, the word of God, that you would transform our lives, our hearts. Father, we need you. We need to be changed. And we acknowledge that. And I just pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would have your way in each of our hearts and lives and that you would be glorified. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you watched the Super Bowl this year? Okay, I know the Seahawks or nor Packers were in the Super Bowl. I, I, that was a great travesty of this year's football season. But in the days leading up to the Super Bowl, we were subjected to a lot of hype, excitement, speculation, and mostly useless information. 
But the purpose of all this hype and information was to get as many people as possible to watch 22 grown men chase an air-filled pigskin around the field. But if you talk to the individual teams and the coaches and players, you get a very different perspective. Each team had a very defined mission, and that mission was to win, to win. Each team's strategy was different. This year's game pitted the number one offense of the Carolina Panthers against the number one defense of the Denver Broncos. The team's strategies differed, but the mission was the same. They were there for one purpose, to win, to win the Super Bowl. The planning, the money, the hard work all had to do with the same mission, to win. That was their mission. Well, as followers of Jesus Christ, we also have a mission. And it's critical that we understand our mission, the reason we exist as a church, the church universal, and why we exist as a church, Eau Claire Wesleyan Church. Our strategies may differ from church to church, local church to local church, but our mission remains the same. What's that mission? That mission is to win. Now, I'm not talking about winning like in a sports context or, or a video game or television game show. In these contests to win, someone has to lose. Winning here is to win hearts and minds, the hearts and minds of people, to help them understand who Jesus is, to help them understand who God is and what Jesus came to do, to win them to the person of Jesus Christ. It's not about win-lose, it's about win-win. Now we're gonna, we're gonna spend some time looking at that mission today, and I, uh, I want us to, to look at a passage of scripture that basically is the first mission Jesus sent his followers on. We've talked a lot about mission, we've talked about the mission of Jesus, the mission of the church, and I want us to spend some time this morning to look at the first mission that he sent the disciples or the followers of Jesus on. And I'd like you to turn with me to Luke 9. Luke, the ninth chapter, is on page 841 in the, in the Bible in front of you in the rack, uh, page 841. Uh, Luke 9, we're going to read the first six verses of Luke 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that, house, that town. If the people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave the town as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. These six verses are the, describe the very first mission Jesus had his followers, and he called them the 12, the 12, the 12 disciples. And this mission was going to set the course for their future lives. They were sent on a mission to make a difference. They were to become agents of positive change. They were not agents of SHIELD or federal agents of NCIS or some other organization. They were agents of Jesus the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and they were sent out to make a difference to have a positive impact on their world. The responses would vary, but the mission was the same. 
Now we begin the mission with one of the most important concepts, the most difficult yet the most crucial part of the mission. Without this, their mission, our mission will never get off the ground. It says Jesus called the 12 together. He called the 12 together. This is a mission of a call to unity. Call to unity. When preparing for a specific mission, it's critical for there to be unity. Unity. Now, um, football is a great illustration of unity, and I hope you don't mind me using football illustrations. Some of you identify readily. Some of you go, oh, here he goes again. But I want to describe unity through the eyes of a football team. One person calls a play. Every person has a specific assignment during that particular play. The center snaps the ball and blocks. The linemen block the pass rush or they pull to one side to block for the run. They open holes, they may block downfield. The wide receivers run a route and the ball is thrown before they cut and turn. And if it's done right, they are to get to where the ball is going to be and catch it, okay? The quarterback hands off the ball, he pitches or passes to an assigned person. The running backs block or they run or they receive whatever's called for. Then you have special teams which all have specific assignments, whether it's the kickoff or the, or the punt return, they have specific lanes they're supposed to cover, specific assignments they're supposed to cover. Then you have the defense who have specific zones or they have specific running lanes or they have specific persons if it's a man-to-man -man defense. Now, in all the chaos that we watch, in all the chaos of one play, if one person is out of sync, just one, or they miss their assignment, the whole effort is worthless. It's for naught. Everybody else's effort, work, and contribution is wasted if one person fails their assignment. It all, all falls apart. Which shows, first of all, every person is important. It's critical. Every person is important. One missed block, one snapping mistake, a wrong passing route, bad timing, and it goes nowhere. They need, in order to succeed and win, they need unity. Unity. And you know what? All 11 guys have their own opinion about what play they should run. I'll bet if you had them all, they'd say, I think we should do this. I've, I've been in those huddles. Everybody's going, I think we should do this. No, 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 no. You know, you're in this argument, and you're trying to, who's going to call the play? They have their own opinion, but they can only run one play at a time. And the coach of the quarterback calls the play. And for the sake of the unity, they all go along with that call. In unity for the good of the whole, with the ultimate mission to win, they run the same play and they do it over and over and over again. One of the most valuable lessons, and you probably learned this as you played sports or your kids are playing sports, one of the most valuable lessons of team sports is learning how to cooperate, work together in unity in order to achieve a goal and to sacrifice our personal opinions and ideas for the good of the whole. Now what about us as a church? What does football have to do with the church? Nothing, really. You know, it doesn't really have anything. But unity, unity does. The reason many churches never get off the ground or they get stuck or they never move forward in mission, they never win, is because there's no unity. There's no unity. Everybody's doing their own thing, running their own plans, having their own opinions, pushing their own agendas. 
And I'm not talking about disagreements. We all have, always have disagreements. Disagreements do not equate to disunity. Team members can disagree as long as they run the same play. That makes sense? Disagreement does not mean disunity. It's how we handle disagreements. We have an opponent, the enemy of our souls. He's called the devil. He's called the, the Satan. Many types of things. And if we want to win, we must begin with unity. Now, what kinds of unity are there? Are there more than one? Well, we're just going to look at three aspects of unity. The first one is spiritual unity. Spiritual unity. Unity in spirit. Unity in our spiritual relationship. In other words, having our personal relationship with God right. We are spiritually right with God. Our relationship with God must be right in order. And the question I ask is, how is your walk with God? Because your walk with God is going to affect everyone else's walk with God because we're all connected. We're all family. Like it or not, you're connected. And we're only as strong as our weakest player. And the question is, where is your spiritual walk in the unity of the body here? When we all answer to the same God, we can follow his principles found in his word. Then we can have unity. If we're connected with God, intimately walking with God, Philippians 2, 2 through 4 says this. Paul is writing to a church and he says this. He said, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Several phrases, like-minded, same love, one in spirit, one in purpose, no selfish ambition, no vain conceit. It says, consider others better than yourself. Look out to the other's interest. That's not always easy to do. Who gets the most glory on a football team? <laughs> okay, boom, just like that, the quarterback. Um, can somebody name the starting left guard on the Denver Broncos? Anybody know the name of the starting left guard? Well, maybe somebody. How about, how about this, the right tackle on the Carolina Panthers? Yeah, Michael Orr. Okay, yeah. And the reason I know that is because he was in a movie and we knew that. So, you, you, you're, yeah, okay. <laughs> but who gets the most attention? The quarterback, maybe the running back, a wide receiver that makes a great play. It's amazing. Um, their accomplishments, however, if the quarterback or the running back, whoever gets the most glory, their accomplishments require a lot of like-mindedness, oneness in spirit, purpose, and unselfishness by team players. It requires unselfishness because nobody knows what they did. Once in a while, once in a while the commentators say, oh, did you see Michael Orr throw that block and sprung him loose for the, you know, you, once in a while you get that, but it's usually the, look at that great pass and catch, you know, it's, it's usually everybody that had to do with the ball. Well, oneness and unselfishness. The church needs spiritual unity, being united in spirit, connected to the same leader, Jesus who calls the place. Jesus calls the place. Unity and spirit all go in the same direction. Now, how do we know what play Jesus is calling? How do we know? What's our playbook? Ah, what's our playbook? It's the Bible. This is the second area of unity. 
which is doctrinal unity, doctrinal. Spiritual unity has to do with spirit, doctrinal unity has to do with beliefs. Now how important are our beliefs? We sang about it, we believe, we believe, and we talked about the resurrection and the crucifixion and all of those things in a song that we just had this. Beliefs make a difference. And a major challenge to us as Christians today is the infiltration of, of other or contrary beliefs to our doctrine or faith. It's not new. Our beliefs have been challenged from the very, very beginning. Now, one of the ways, and, and it comes in many ways, one of the ways, the most subtle ways, it comes is in a way called syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is taking a little bit of this belief system, a little bit of that belief system, and making up your own religion. It's very convenient. It's very convenient, you just make up your own religion. It's called the grab bag approach, syncretism. I create my own personal brand of Christianity. It goes a little like this, you know, I like unconditional love, so I'm gonna let love be the foundation of my faith. Um, I don't like the concept of an angry God or judgment, so we're just gonna get rid of hell or eternal judgment, okay? Now, it seems that it'd be really good if we all got more than one chance around at life, you know, so that so, so I, we can get it right. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna incorporate reincarnation so we can have unlimited chances to reach nirvana or perfection. I'm gonna incorporate political correctness and I'm gonna, val I'm gonna validate all beliefs as equal and true. My truth, your truth, it doesn't matter what's true. So we all have truths and so this is my faith. And we take all of these things and put them together. Now, you think I'm being naive? Man, it is prevalent. You talk to people and they say, oh, I'm a Christian. Oh really, what do you believe? And, and you find out what they believe and you go, where do they get that? Well, they took a little of this, a little of that, and they made up their own religion. There's an organization headquartered in Seattle called the Women of Wisdom. It's a pagan faith is what it is. And they embrace all kinds of spiritual paths, earth-centered and goddess spirituality, inconshamanic practices. They have what they call our cultural creatives. It, it grew out of social movements, feminism, environmentalism, consciousness movements, and spirituality, psychology, and alternative health. One of the prominent examples of a, a cultural creative is a, is a woman named Margot Adler. She was a correspondent for National Public Radio. And she is a leader in the pagan community. Her writings were quoted in a Seattle Times article. She said this, I am uncomfortable with any religious system that assumes there's one truth and one reality. Paganism starts with the idea there are multiple peoples in the world. It's perfectly reasonable for each to have their own way of looking at the world with their own deities. She believes in the view of deity as imminent in everything. In other words, pantheism, it's, it, God is in and out everything. She says, with humans neither superior nor inferior to nature. It fits in with the ideas of equality, Pluralism, ecology, fits in with my politics and spirituality, she says. More than anything, it's paganism and pantheism. And I guarantee you that if you've been in a public school of any kind, university, high school, junior high, whatever it is, there's a lot of this kind of teaching going on. And the goal is to make everybody believe that there's, one tr there's not one truth, it's my truth, it's this truth, whatever you believe, there's nothing objective, there's nothing that you can know for sure, all of these issues. Syncretism, and they try to promote this in every aspect they have. 
These people would have a cyclical view of history. In other words, they believe in reincarnation. Say, oh, in my last life or in the next life. And you hear people just kind of say that tritely. Don't, don't talk like that. That's, that's Hinduism. Okay? That's Hinduism. That's believing in reincarnation. The Bible teaches a, not a cyclical view of history where we keep coming back. It teaches a live, lineal. There's a beginning, middle, end. And there's a, there's a lineal view of history that has a beginning and end, and God is sovereignly overseeing all of that. Hebrews 9.27, it says, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment. We get one life, one death, and after that, it's lineal. We're not gonna come back, okay? And if people say, you know, I'm a Christian, I just, I just like reincarnation, you know what they're saying. It's not true. We have to have, if we're gonna have unity, we have to have doctrinal unity. Now, we don't have time to look at all the syncretistic beliefs that undermine doctrinal unity in the church, but there's an infiltration of all kinds of beliefs all over the place. And it undermines the unity of belief because if we don't believe the same thing, how can we be unified? Ephesians 4, 13 to 14 says this, until we all reach unity in the faith, in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Doctrinal unity. And the Bible is our standard. This is our standard. Now, not everybody that attends church and not everybody that's here this morning may believe that this is the word of God and it's, it's infallible and inerrant in the original autographs, but we as Wesleyans in the Wesleyan church believe that, just that. And I challenge you to look carefully at that belief. The Bible is our standard and if, if we espouse teaching counter to the Bible, we then produce disunity. Spiritual unity, doctrinal unity. And then there's the third unity, unity of action. If we're unified in spirit, unified in belief, we're gonna, we're gonna be unified in action because we're all coming from the same playbook. We're gonna produce similar actions. We're gonna be unified, our standard of faith and practice. And the principles in the word of God apply to our marriages, they apply to the family, the local church, the church universal. They apply to all of us at all times. They apply to our personal lives. And there's an actions that come out of our belief system. We choose how we relate to that. So the first step in win to win, win, win is called the unity. The second in this mission that Jesus gives us is equipped with power and authority. Equipped with power and authority. The word power in the Greek is dunamis, meaning the might and the ability to do and act. It's not just raw power sitting there. It's the ability to act. It's an action word. And Jesus didn't send his followers on their mission and say, good luck, I hope you make it. Um, let me know how it goes. No. He gave them power. Now there's a very interesting passage in, in John 14. It says this, 15 to 17. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. That's the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Now, what's that all about? Before Jesus went to heaven and was, uh, was glorified, 
the Holy Spirit was sent to the earth at different times on specific individuals. You know, you say the Spirit came on David, on Saul, on Samson to do mighty acts. Say so the Spirit of God was given to people, human beings, at intermittent times when they needed it, and God would send the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. But it wasn't for everybody. Now, in this particular, he's saying to them, the Holy Spirit is with you. Jesus was with them, so the Holy Spirit was with them. But he says, he will be, future tense, will be in you, okay? Nobody at this point had experienced on a continuous basis the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's why in Joel it says, in the final days, my spirit will come on all flesh and it describes what what will happen. And that event happened in the book of Acts. And in Acts 1.8 it says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Then he's not gonna just be with you, he's gonna be in you. Which means Jesus sends his spirit to dwell inside of us. God's person, the Holy Spirit, takes up residence in our lives, takes over our lives at our request, changes us, and gives us power. We don't have power on our own. It's the spirit of God that actually dwells inside of us. Now, we're not gods. God is God, but God enters our life and empowers us, and we need power, we desperately need his power if we're gonna carry out this mission that he's given us to change the world. Some have never accessed God's power for mission. It's like pulling a wagon by ourselves or letting the horses walk behind, having a car with a powerful engine and just pushing it ourselves. It's like the Minnesotan who went to the local hardware store and bought a new chainsaw. The next day, he brought it back and told the clerk, the saw doesn't work. And the clerk said, let me try that. So he pulled the rope and started up the engine, and the guy said, what's that noise? Just going to let you think that through a little bit. Sorry, if you're from Minnesota, we used to tell North Dakota jokes, Minnesota jokes, you know, whatever. Power tools without power. It's got the power there, but it's not being utilized. And many people are like a power tool that's not being used. The power's not being used. It's like, if you look like a chainsaw, act like a chainsaw, you must be a chainsaw. But why is the church so ineffective? We have this power that's not being used. We're not pulling the string. We're not utilizing the engine, the power. And you can imagine trying to use a chainsaw to cut down a tree. It doesn't work. Power. We have the power resident. Let's use it. Power is available. We have to use it. Secondly, not only are we given power to use, we're given authority. He gave him authority. Exousia is the word, which means the right or the authority. It's the authority to use the power that Jesus gives us. Now, recent events have taken place in some of our cities where people were destroying property, they were rioting, and they were causing all kinds of havoc. And we saw all the pictures all over the, the, the TV. And they showed law enforcement officers with the power and ability to stop this destruction and violence. And they're just standing there. Why? They had the power to stop any of this violence they wanted to. They were told to stand down. They were told to stand down. They had the power but they were not granted the authority. There's a difference. They had the power, they were not granted the authority. Jesus has given us the power and the authority to use his power. We have his power, we have the authority. 
When we're talking about the spiritual realm and demons doing their thing and Satan you know, bringing all this destruction on humanity and all the evil that we see around us, we have been given the power to deal with it over demons and the authority, the power and authority to act. People are not our enemy. Satan is the enemy. He's been called the ruler of this world. He and his demons, fallen angels, perpetuate the evil. They tempt, harass, accuse, deceive, and destroy. They perpetuate this evil, trying to rob human beings created in the image of God of their God-granted likeness and rights. And we have been given power and authority for mission over the enemy, over evil. Demons have no power over a Christian. We have a power and authority over them. Now, let me just qualify something here. The only power that Satan has over a Christian is where we give in to them and give them a place through sin. See, when we sin, we're not doing the acts of righteousness. We're not lining up with God. We're lining up with the enemy. We sin. And when, if, unless we deal with it immediately, when we sin, God calls on us to confess and repent. We talked about spiritual breathing several weeks ago, how we confess our sin, we appropriate his forgiveness. If we don't do that, it gives the devil a place of influence. Ephesians 4, 26 to 27 says this, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. What is he saying? He's saying anger, don't sin if, you, if, you're, if you're anger. If you anger and you are, it is a sin. If you don't deal with it, it will give the devil a foothold. In other words, deal with your anger, deal with your sin immediately. If you do not, you give the devil a foothold. Some people call it a stronghold. Stronghold. If we nurse anger, if we nurse bitterness, if we nurse lust or greed or any sin, if we have this besetting sin and we just kind of hide it and nurse it and feed it, Satan has an influence. He can't possess us, but he can influence us through that stronghold, through that place of influence. Any sin. And as part of our mission equipment, we have the power and authority. And if we live in sin and we have this besetting sin that we continue to hang on to, we will continue to cede our territory to the enemy by giving him place and influence in our lives. And by the way, this is something we talked about yesterday in our town hall meeting includes gossip. Gossip. You gossip, you're lining up with the enemy, you're giving him a place because gossip is a sin. We do not need to give in to that. We can confess those sins, get rid of them. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you know what? We may need to do that all the time as we sin. Deal with it. Don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't give him a foothold, stronghold. And people that give in to, whether it's pornography, addictions of any kind, they have this continual influence, this continual stronghold that needs to be broken off because they've given that for over some people for years. It can be broken, but the sin has to be confessed and dealt with. Now sometimes Christians have taken a defensive posture. They take the, the, the verse, the gates of hell will not overcome us. And let me tell you something, that's not a defensive statement, that's an offensive. It says the gates of hell are there. We're taking 
offense. We're going after that. That's the authority and power. We have the offensive weapons to go after the enemy. The gates of hell, nothing can stand before a united, holy, righteous church. Then we have a mission of clarity, number three. Two parts to the mission. Preach and heal. Now I want to start with a message. He says, preach the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? What does he mean, preach the kingdom of God? To them, they all of a sudden understood what the kingdom of God meant. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Matthew 12, 22 through 28, he talks about what the kingdom of God is. This is a critical passage in understanding the kingdom of God. Very critical. Verse 22 of Matthew 12 says, Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? Okay, he, he dealt with a guy who cast out his demon and healed him. The Pharisees heard this, they saw this, and they said, It's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and he said, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then, they be your judges. But, here's the the final part. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, and it's a conditional sentence of if I drive them out, and I do, the expected answer is yes, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What is he saying? He's saying the prince of the ruler of this world, Satan, was dominant on the earth for all these years, and Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to set up his kingdom, which would transcend and defeat everything that had been done. He said, I want you to go and tell people that the kingdom of God has come. The good news of the gospel is that you don't have to be subject to the evil and the destitution and all the awful things that have been here for so long. We have now, the kingdom of God has come into the world. He said, preach it, the dominion of God, that God rules. He says, you are sent out, sent out with instructions, kerosene, It says to proclaim as a herald. Two words that describe our mission. That God rules, God is king. He transcends everything. God has established his kingship. One day, of course, when we get to the consummation of time, he will establish his kingdom that reigns forever and ever and ever and ever. We experience this kingdom now in its partiality, totality later. We have that message We have the message. And he says, I want you to tell it. History records an account of a destruction of an ancient town. Uh, Ancient towns were set up with walls. Usually had a gate on either end of the town. And they they were high enough that they could keep invaders out. Ancient cities, and in Bible times, um, it was a violent time. People would, would come and they would would attack towns and pillage them and take their, everything that was there, kill everybody, burn the town down, and off they go. They were raiders, and so they built towns with, with walls around them, and you would have, you'd post watchmen up on the wall, and they would look for these raiding parties, and if they saw something that somebody that was coming, they'd blow a trumpet, everybody would get the warning, they'd come running in and put the, put the, close the gates and everybody was safe. 
And they didn't have the means at that point to be able to get in the walls. Unless they, you know, there were ways they discovered later. But basically, the watchmen were the ones that called. Now, in one particular town, the watchmen had blown the trumpet one too many times. It, they, they gave too many false alarms, so they finally quit blowing the trumpet because they said, people are tired of this, they're getting mad at us because it's been wrong. And, and sure enough, raiders came, they didn't blow the trumpet, and they destroyed the town. All that was left was smoking ruins. And later, someone erected a small memorial inscribed with the following epitaph. Here stood a town that was destroyed by silence. Here stood a town that was destroyed by silence. America today is being destroyed by silence. And we have the message. We are called the watchmen on the wall. We are here to blow the trumpet. We have the proclamation to say the kingdom of God has come. You can be free. Second part of the mission we spent a lot more time on a couple weeks ago, heal the sick. To restore to wholeness includes physical healing. And people desperately need healing today. We've been given the power to bring healing, physical healing, mental healing, psychological healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. And we desperately need the healing power in the church today. When I'm talking about expect Jesus, I'm wanting to raise expectancy that we can expect Jesus to heal. We can expect Jesus to answer prayer. He does it today just like he did back in his day. Preach the kingdom of God. Heal the sick. And third, get moving. Get moving. Jesus gives them these, these guidelines. He said, don't, um, don't carry an extra staff, a bag, bread, whatever. And there's a sense of urgency. It's not, he's not saying don't prepare. He's saying there's an urgency that precludes detailed plans. In other words, just go do it. Now, we should plan, and I, I have no problem with planning. But Bruce Larson, in his commentary on Luke, tells a story. During World War II, General MacArthur once asked his chief engineer how soon he could get a bridge across a certain river. And he said, about three days. It'll take about three days. So the engineer was told to go ahead and draw up the plans. Three days later, General MacArthur asked for those plans. And the engineer looked surprised, and he said, oh, the bridge is ready. You can cross it now. If you want the plans, you'll have to wait a little longer. We haven't finished those yet. Sometimes we spend too much time planning and don't act. Sometimes God wants us to act. You know, there's something to be said for planning, and there's something to be said about following the Spirit of God and doing what he says now. And there's a sense of urgency in the mission. In this particular case, he said, just go and follow the Spirit. Just take this. Don't, don't bring all this stuff along with you. Don't go encumbered. Get moving. He said, time is short. So what happened? How did the disciples do? You know, I, I always like this part because we're going to experience whatever they experience, we're going to experience. We go out, we tell people, we, we share the gospel, we, we tell people about Jesus. We exercise power and throw, all of those things can happen. And they, they did signs and what? They did all kinds of things in front of people. And some believed. Wasn't that great? A whole bunch loved to be believed. Some were healed, it says. Some were delivered. And then there were some that rejected. 
rejected. I, I came to the conclusion a long time ago that because it happened in Jesus' life, it happened in the book of Acts, it happened in the life of disciples, it happens in our life. Signs and wonders or miracles aren't going to convince people. Uh, you know, people, people saw Lazarus raised from the dead. What was their reaction? Half of them believed. The other half said, we've got to kill this guy. People are going to believe in him. What? Seriously? That's, that's what their reaction was. Shaking the dust. It's interesting. He said, I want you to shake the dust off your feet as a testimony. But it shows that if you bring this message to someone, you are relieved of the responsibility. You cannot control what the response is. And so when we bring the gospel, we share it, we tell people about Jesus, we're not responsible for the response. They are. And he basically said, shake the dust off. It de- demonstrates a severance, and it shows you're no longer responsible. The responses to our message will vary. They're going to be different all the time. But we cannot control people's responses, nor can we take responsibility. Our mission is to go. We have a mission. First is unity. Starts here. We've been equipped with power and authority. It's clear, and it'll be received in many different ways. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who's given us a mission. There's a purpose for our existence. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we move out into our worlds this week, that you would again inspire us and help us understand. Father, I pray for this particular church, Eau Claire Wesleyan Church, that you would bring unity. Father, you know that doesn't happen except by spiritual miracles. It's the miraculous part of bringing us together miraculously. And I just pray, God, that you would bring us together because when a church is unified, there's nothing that cannot be done in the kingdom through that church. And Father, I just pray that you would help each one of us to understand our role and that we would get right with you and stay in close touch with you, that we would not dabble in sin. We would put away all those things where the devil can have influence, that you would bring us to holiness and righteousness. And God, that you would, by your love, the power of your love, use us to touch this world that desperately needs to know about your love and your life-changing power. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand, shall we? Love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all those in Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed.